Would you uh, take a moment to close your eyes? And I want to invite you to open your heart and your mind to a God who is with us, has always been with us. You're with us even right now. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you, help our hearts and our minds, all that we have, our feelings, desires, emotions, to be lifted in worship to you. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Lewis. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Beach Point as the pastor of worship and the arts. And um, this week, we're in chapter 24 of the story, and we're in a mini-series within the bigger series called Redemption, in which we're looking at the birth, life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the title of this chapter is actually really interesting. The title of this chapter um, is No Ordinary Man. No Ordinary Man. You know, as I was kind of uh, spending some time prepping for today, I was thinking, uh, who kind of fits into being kind of extraordinary in my life? A real person. Well, um, (laughs) I turned the pages of my history book back about 20 years, and, um, and the year is 1997. Yes, 1997. You can imagine where you were at. Let me tell you where I was at. <laughs> um, well, I was your typical flannel-wearing, ripped jean, sporting, Birkenstock, wearing Birkenstock being sandals. I still wear them to this day, so I am, it's not trendy for me, okay? I'm the original, the OG. For some of you youngins, this has been around a while. I loved listening to Nirvana. Bring up the picture, Matthew. This last week was Kurt Cobain's birthday. We don't celebrate Kurt Cobain here, but as a, as, a, as a teenager, I thought, man, that I can just remember, I'm looking at my cousin in the back. He was into Pearl Jam. I was into Nirvana, um, Rivals. And, uh, and we would spend, actually, this is like how we kind of learned how to play music, is the, of grunge rock. Um, scary. <laughs> Anyways, let's take his picture down. Um, so I was, I was thinking, uh, okay, uh, you know, I was one of those teenagers that had, you know, teenage angst. Um, and so I, I was just a product of the 90s. I was a product of my generation. Um, but I remember the year was 1997. And I was a senior at Braille Linda High School. I was a wildcat. And um, my favorite teacher, my favorite teacher was Dr. Larry Bishop. Dr. Bishop 
We didn't just call him doctor. He actually had a, uh, a doctorate in computer science. And uh, he had a master's degree in agriculture. And he taught ROP photography. <laughs> Go figure. Um, actually, in the last service, somebody came up to me and said, oh my gosh, I worked in the 80s with Dr. Bishop at the old high school, because they have a new building now, and they actually had an agricultural program back then. And she said to me, he used to kill the, the, the pig and, and then cook it and feed it to the staff. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, how nice. Um, Dr. Bishop was, uh, was my Kurt Cobain. He was grunge rock, punk rock. He did not color within the lines. He pushed the envelope. He didn't give in to the status quo. He was no ordinary teacher, for sure. In fact, um, his, he taught his students in ways that were... I mean, I thought they were effective. I was failing every other class, but I was getting an A in photo. <laughs> really hard work. His class was constantly filled with students, whether they were processing film, uh, printing photos in the dark room, checking out cameras. I just, I can remember even, to, I mean, today I can re- even remember as an underclassman desiring to be in his class because only seniors were allowed to be in his class because it was so impacted. And in the classroom, Dr. Bishop was incredibly skillful. Um, he would share with us the secrets of his own craft of photography and his memories as a teenager, um, studying under the one and only Ansel Adams. And if you don't know who Ansel Adams is, maybe you've seen this picture Ansel Adams is most well-known for his black-and-white collection of Yosemite. I got to hold that picture printed by Ansel Adams, signed to my friend, Dr. Laurie Bishop. I had no idea what I was holding. It's like a -a one-of-a-kind printed by Ansel Adams. I saw the entire Yosemite collection. Not a print, not a fake, not a copy, the real thing. And there is such depth and beauty that a copy just doesn't embody. Dr. Bishop was one of those teachers that just painted a vision of what could be. What could be. You know what? Everyone, everywhere I went, I went with a camera in my hand. My friends were annoyed with me. They told me, get that camera out of my face. He learned, he taught me how to capture life one frame at a time. One second too early, the moment wasn't there yet. One second too late, it was was gone. And in fact, I actually, going into Dr. Bishop's class, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I thought at that point, maybe I'll be a band director because I was in band. And, uh, that's stupid. I don't want to be a band director. I mean, bless you if you are. I, just for me, I just wouldn't have made a great one. Um, in fact, uh, his teaching actually inspired me to pursue uh, a career as a photojournalist. And so I, that's what I did. I, I went on to pursue uh, a career working in the newspaper industry uh, as a photojournalist. I actually even had an internship at the LA Times, the defunct LA Times Metro Edition. Um, as my love of photography was increasing and this call to photojournalism was 
you know, increasing, the newspaper industry was just plummeting. And so reality kind of hit. What am I going to do with my life? But Dr. Bishop, you know what? He was just one of those guys. His classroom was an incubator for inspiration, creativity, and of the what could be. Have you ever had somebody in your life that has been that influential? Think, think about it for a moment. Have you ever had somebody in your life that has been that influential? For me, it was Dr. Bishop. It, it's that kind of person that challenges the way you think, influences you, to, influences you to dream beyond your vision of the future, communicates in ways that break through into your heart, believes in you like no one else does, and sees the potential in you that you don't see in yourself. Dr. Bishop was no ordinary teacher. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. And I think that's a really important distinction. Dr. Bishop was no ordinary teacher. Jesus, the claim is Jesus was no ordinary man. Listen, listen. Teaching is something that Dr. Bishop did. It wasn't who he was. If you're a teacher and you disagree with that, email Bill. Um, Your job, your vocation does not necessarily define who you are. But to be no ordinary person, man or woman, is to make a claim about your identity as a person. Again, Dr. Bishop was no ordinary teacher, but he was an ordinary man, for sure. But what about Jesus? And this is the question that we want to get at this morning. Why does our definition of who Jesus is matter? Why does our definition of who Jesus is matter? What we're going to see and what we're going to realize is that different people have different definitions for who Jesus was. And the first thing you notice, and you can write this down, this is the first point, Jesus is an extraordinary teacher. Extraordinary teacher. What people quickly realized about Jesus was that he was an extraordinary teacher. At the time when Jesus began his ministry, the faithful Jewish community was accustomed to going to the temple, being taught by the rabbi who read from the book of the law, the Torah. Imagine going to church every Sunday in our current modern context, okay? And the pastor opens the book, and he turns to Leviticus, the Bible, and he turns to Leviticus, and he begins reading the detailed instructions for what you can and can't eat, for what you can and can't wear. And, and, and for some of you, I'm, like myself, I can't do this anymore. What kind of haircut you can get? Do you still have hair? What kind of haircut you can and can't have? But then Jesus came along, and his teaching, it was different. It kind of deepened things, widened them out. Turn them upside down. He told parables, which were stories that communicated a deeper truth. And the impact was much greater than a simple reading of the Old Testament law. Jesus' teaching was polarizing. You either were amazed by it or it ticked you off. And we could see in in the Gospel of Matthew, crowds gathered, but within the crowds... There were also the Pharisees who were getting really ticked off with the kind of teaching that, that Jesus was, was proclaiming. And we see uh, in Jesus' only recorded sermon in the Bible, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it's found in uh, Matthew 5 through chapter 7. You can turn there now. It's on page 968 of the Pew Bible in front of you. His teaching was extraordinary. It was different. He says here, he says, Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. This is Matthew 5, 3 through 6. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you ever, um, have you ever known somebody who has used a word improperly? You all, you all have somebody in mind. That's good. So my mom does this all the time. She just got an iPhone. And she's, my, my, I'm 37. My 60-some-odd-year-old mother has just started texting me. It's so weird. It's so weird. And she, <laughs> she texts my sisters more than she texts me. You could tell because she ends every sentence with LOL. And it's like, a, it's like a period for her. And so I finally asked her, do you know what that means? And she said, no, but your sister's put it at the, ever, at the end of every sentence. And I'm like, mom, that is not a period. It means laughing out loud. And, and, and just as, you know, uh, my poor mother, um, you would have thought Jesus was doing the same thing when he used the word blessed. He told people, blessed are the poor, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This word means happy. Wait, what? Blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. Happy are the weak. Jesus knew exactly what he meant when he said, Blessed are the meek for the kingdom, for in my kingdom, for in they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for in my kingdom they will inherit the earth. He wanted to show people what life is like in the kingdom of God and how it's different. Jesus' teaching was so different. Um, It was so extraordinary. Even in other ways, as we continue to read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenged the religious practices of the day. When you pray, do not pray like those who are hypocrites. For they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. He attacked materialism. Do not store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, on earth, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He warned against the power of money. You cannot serve God and money. He coached them through anxiety. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour of life to your life? Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. And after he finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, end of chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, we see he's no ordinary teacher. In fact, he says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. He taught as one who had authority, but not as their teachers of the law. Something was different. Something was different. They knew that he was no ordinary teacher. They knew Jesus was an extraordinary teacher, and they defined him as such. But the amazement, the amazement 
they have with Jesus' teaching, it doesn't indicate their acceptance of his teaching. In fact, the term amazed is the passive form of the Greek word, which is not a commitment of faith. The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching, and they labeled him as an extraordinary teacher. But amazement, it's not the same thing as commitment. You can be amazed by something, wowed by something, but not embrace it. You, know, you and I can define Jesus as extraordinary, as an extraordinary teacher. And we too can be amazed at some of his teachings. But you know what? That doesn't make us his followers or his disciples. We can be amazed at his teachings and yet not obey. We can love them and simply pick and choose the pieces that we like and we don't like. In fact, um, I liken this to a buffet. Now, the best buffets, my opinion, in the world are in Las Vegas at Caesar's Palace. Uh, the best buffet, hands down. And, but you've, you've been to those buffets where it's like, yeah, you don't go to the seafood section because you don't know if you're going to get sick. So you leave that to the side. But you know the barbecue's cooked, and so it's okay to eat that part. So you indulge in that, but you leave that alone. It's kind of like that. And I, I think this is so prolific in our current context. What I mean by that is we have such good teaching at hand. This thing right here. You can, you can have the best teachers in your ears in but a click. And you can love their teaching. In fact, one of the things that I'm most worried about is we label people as really good teachers, just like we label Jesus as an extraordinary teacher. But there's no commitment attached to it. Just good teaching. Did, did the people see Jesus simply as an extraordinary teacher? I mean, the, the context, he didn't just teach. He also did extraordinary things. And this is the second thing I want you to write down. Jesus is an extraordinary miracle worker. Jesus not only taught things that amazed the crowds, but he, is, he also did things that amazed the crowds. Jesus not only taught, he did. In chapter 24 of the story and in the Bible, it tells of, of this sort of time where Jesus would heal a man with leprosy. Jesus heals a servant of a centurion without even having to go to his house. And there are plenty of times when Jesus does extraordinary miracles. For example, there was a time... You could see the story in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Or in Matthew, we're going to kind of camp out in Matthew today. Matthew chapter 8. There was a time when Jesus and his disciples were in a storm. And they were in a boat. And the, the disciples discover that Jesus is an extraordinary miracle worker. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Then, then he got into the boat. And his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm arose, so that the winds, the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. In Mark, I like this detail, Jesus was sleeping on a pillow. Isn't that nice? Dallas Willer uses this term, and I think it so beautifully captures Jesus' posture 
Jesus is relaxed. But the disciples, I don't know if you've ever been on, a, say, a cruise ship or a boat when there is a, uh, a hurricane or a storm and you've got 4,000 people uh, just, I mean, it's like utter chaos. People are throwing up. They're queasy. They, um, they can't walk straight. Uh, it is just the worst, most chaotic experience. And here are the disciples in a little boat, and Jesus is on a pillow sleeping, and the disciples awake Jesus, and they say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Super important thing to notice. If we turn the pages of Scripture back, who is the God who rescues the, his people, the Israelite people, from the hand of the Egyptians? Who, who at, at the raising of the staff, splits the Red Sea? Yahweh. I am God. Who is this kind of, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Those, those dudes in that boat would have known, wait a second, the great I am is the one who has command over the water. So what kind of man is this? The disciples witness this miraculous act and they ask, who is this? This, this is no ordinary man. Jesus is far more than the disciples have assumed up to this point in time. And now they're kind of scratching their heads and they're thinking, uh, okay, um, who are you? See, the disciples and the crowds of people, they all saw Jesus do miraculous things. Jesus was able to heal diseases, raise people from the dead. Jesus was able to command the elements and they would obey him. But this left them, the disciples, with a question of what kind of man this was. Jesus is powerful. We know that. We, we can see it right there in Matthew 8. But what else are we left? We're not sure what else to think about him. You know, if you see Jesus, think about it this way. If you see Jesus as a miracle worker, Maybe you treat him as your, your, your magic genie in a bottle. Say a little prayer, rub the bottle, he grants your wishes and desires. Jesus, the mighty miracle worker, would you please do such and such? Uh, heal my grandma who is sick. Give me the job that I most want. Uh, and, and even with our college young adult students, you hear this one, uh, give me a date with her. Okay, not her, okay. But with her, okay, maybe with her. It, it, you just, you hear this over and over and over. But if we simply see Jesus as a miracle worker, then we place an emphasis on what Jesus will do for us rather than on who Jesus actually is. We end up placing an emphasis on the stuff that Jesus will do for us rather than the importance of who Jesus is to us. 
We've seen that Jesus is an extraordinary teacher. We've seen that Jesus is an extraordinary miracle worker. But if we simply see him as a great teacher, we can pick and choose what we like, just like a buffet. If we simply see him as a miracle worker, we can begin to treat him like a spiritual vending machine that we deposit a few prayers into and we get what we want. But what if the definition that Jesus wants us to discover is bigger than that? The Gospel of Matthew is leading us to discover this truth. Jesus, this is the next thing you can write down, is the Son of God who is worthy of worship. Jesus is the Son of God who is worthy of worship. He is not just an extraordinary teacher. He is not just an extraordinary miracle worker. You, think, you see, those things all point to something bigger. His teaching, his miracles, they allude, they foreshadow, they point. They support that he is a son of God who is worthy of our worship. The Gospel of Matthew, it's pushing us as we read to go along the journey the first disciples went on, being astonished by his teachings. By being astonished by his power and his teachings, we continue to understand his identity more and more. Jesus wants to show us that he is a son of God. In fact, um, the, the first time I ever read the Gospel of Matthew, from like chapter 1 to chapter 28, was in my undergrad. I was taking a class just on the Gospel of Matthew, and it was required reading, so I did it because I had to. And by the time I got through that book, I have never felt for Jesus. I've ne- I, the scripture had never evoked emotion in me. I found myself weeping, angry, because of the way people were treating him. There was a deep in reality that Jesus was more than an extraordinary teacher and greater than an extraordinary miracle worker. He was a son of God who is worthy of worship. And we see a second time the disciples find themselves in a boat and on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. And in that time, they actually finally discover the truth of who Jesus is. Let's read together Matthew 14, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. It says this, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you. Tell me to come to you on the water. Come. He said, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? 
And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The disciples are in a boat that is being banged up from the waves when they see someone walking on the lake, and they assume it's a ghost. But Jesus responds and wants to reveal more about his identity to them. So Jesus doesn't say this, don't worry, it's Jesus. Instead, he says this, and this is super important. He says, don't worry, it is I. Remember in the first story? Who is this man that he has control over the wind and the waves? And then Jesus says, it is I. Folks, don't miss this. This is super important. Jesus is not saying, hey, it's me, Jesus. Jesus is self-identifying. It's a, it's a divine self-revelation. Along the lines of Isaiah 43, 1-4, he is in essence saying this, it is, it is a great I am, Yahweh. It's me, the Lord your God. Isaiah 43, 1-4 says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and I love you. Jesus is walking on the water in the middle of a furious storm, something that elevates him above any other figure that Peter has ever encountered. Up to this point, Peter has never seen anybody walk on water. But likewise, if Jesus truly is the Lord, and he's not an aberration, there is no need for fear. Peter's focused faith in Jesus' true identity enables him to overcome his fear, to call out to him, Lord, if it is you, call me out on the water, and to recognize that Jesus can enable Peter to come to him. And this time, they don't question. This time, they respond in worship, and they say, truly you are the Son of God. Those who were in the boat didn't say, again, who is this? They, they knew that this was no ordinary, or no ordinary man. And Jesus reveals himself as the true Son of God, who has authoritative power over the elements of nature, and so deserves the worship that is due to God alone. Jesus' walk on the water to the disciples in the storm is intended to elicit faith in his true identity and mission as the Son of God. The time has come for the disciples now to step forward, to claim their responsibilities as leaders in the Jesus movement, which Peter will falteringly attempt to exemplify. You know, Max Lucado, pastor and author, he, um, he actually imagined what a journal entry would have looked like if one of the disciples had made this entry on the morning after Jesus calmed the storm, maybe I would love to read this to you. If you need to, close your eyes and imagine along with me. He writes, I had never seen Jesus as I saw him. I had seen him as powerful. I had seen him as wise. I had witnessed his authority and marveled at his abilities. But what I witnessed last night, I know I'll never forget. I saw God. The God who can't sit still when the storm is too strong. The God who lets me get frightened enough to need him and then comes close enough for me to see him. The God who uses my storms 
as his path to come to me. I saw God. It took a storm for me to see him, but I saw him, and I'll never be the same. It's not enough to think of Jesus as just a great man. It's not enough to think of Jesus as an extraordinary teacher. It's not enough to think of Jesus as an extraordinary miracle worker. Jesus is the Son of God who is worthy to be worshipped. Here's the big idea this morning. How we define who Jesus is, it helps determine how we will worship him. How we define who Jesus is helps to determine how you will worship him. I love Warren Wearsby. He, he says this, Worship is the believer's response of all that they are. Mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is, says, and does. Listen to that again. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are. Mind, emotions, will, body, to what God is, says, and does. The disciples are gripped with the reality that Jesus is much, much more. He is the Son of God, and so with everything they've got, they fall at his feet and they worship him. How have you misdefined Jesus? Who do you say he is? Think about that for a moment. For many people, an understanding of Jesus is cluttered with fragmented or distorted images. We are often more familiar with the pieces of Jesus image that our culture, denomination, church, or life group has chosen for its own than with the full biblical picture of who Jesus is. A partial image of Jesus can never provide a complete understanding of who he is, what he means to our Christian lives, and what it is that he wants to accomplish in us. If Jesus is only a friend to us, then perhaps we do not understand that he is also the powerful Lord of the universe who could supply us with the power necessary to accomplish whatever God calls us to in this life. If Jesus is our gentle shepherd, perhaps we do not recognize him as the religious revolutionary who despised religious hypocrisy. Jesus is all of these images and more, but a balanced, rounded understanding of Jesus needs to incorporate all aspects of his character and his nature. That's really important. Because a faulty vision of Jesus will cause us to reject reject him on reject him or to base our lives on only a partial understanding in the earlier incident of the calming of the storm the disciples were amazed and a bit confused but now after coming to a more complete understanding of who he is they worshiped him they worshiped him A proper appreciation for Jesus' power should produce worship, not simply astonishment. Listen to that again. A proper appreciation for Jesus' power should produce in us worship, not simply astonishment. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a really nice guy with great teachings? Is he your Sunday Jesus, your one-hour Jesus? Jesus Christ is the ultimate meeting point between heaven and earth and the decisive means of reconciliation between God and humanity. Worship involves honoring, serving, and respecting God and abandoning any loyalty 
or devotion that hinders an exclusive, exclusive relationship with just him. Maybe today you're seeking. Maybe today you're seeking. I would invite you to call Jesus Lord. Abandon all your other loyalties and devotions to everything else in this world and choose to follow him. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for some time. Here are a few ways to grow in your worship of Jesus. First, practice the presence of Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus everywhere you go. And develop a line of communication with him in all your circumstances. You know what this is called? It's called developing a life of prayer. That's what it's called. So first, practice the presence of God. Two, consider that your circumstances are not the measure of Jesus' love for you. Consider that your circumstances are not the measure of Jesus' love for you. He will never leave you. I love Romans 8. Oh, so good. He will never leave you, never abandon you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he never loves you less, even though your conditions cause you to doubt him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Third, finally, choose to open yourself to Jesus' power, presence, and love in the midst of the most difficult times of life. Choose to open yourself to Jesus' power, presence, and love in the most difficult times of life. That's called intention. Practice the presence. Consider your circumstance. Choose to open yourself up. When we know that he is near, we can and we must call on him. This was Peter's exercise of faith in calling out for Jesus' saving help, even at the time that he was most failing. As the band comes up, I want to invite us, um, may we respond today together in worship with all that we are, our mind, emotions, will, and body. May we respond like the disciples and worship him and declare, truly, you are the Son of God. You know, worship to God can be expressed in a song, and I think it's a fantastic thing. Uh, it's easy. It doesn't have to sound good. And uh, it's a place to begin. But you know what? It should move beyond a song. And it should be expressed with your whole life. As we sing, I want to invite you, open your hearts and thank God for who he is, all that he's done. And you know what? He's not done with you yet. So praise him for all he has yet to do in your life. There is no other name than the name of Jesus that our hearts should sing most for. So take a few moments. I want to invite you to just prayerfully close your eyes, bow your heads. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, just simply say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. Help me to follow you for all the, day, the rest of my days of my life. Help me to be obedient. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, 
ask him now to show you the ways that you've misdefined him and ask him to help you to follow him with greater faithful obedience to his will.